Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Glad to have you with me. Boy, what a monumental day it is. The phone number 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. Yeah, we got to start the show obviously with Ukraine and what's happening there. And we've got to begin with a couple of points in history. And I want to I want to do two separate stories so that they can be woven together so that you understand at least whether you agree with what Vladimir Putin is doing or not. And I don't, you can at least understand the perspective of the other side, in this case of the Russians. We first have to start not with yesterday, not with last week, not with even last year or the last 10 years. We got to go back to December 5th, 1989. The Berlin Wall has fallen. East Germans are pouring across the the East German border inside Berlin, a divided city. Berlin is surrounded by East Germany, but due to the Allies and the Russians arriving at roughly the same time, the city itself of Berlin is divided, a western and an eastern half. Uh, John F. Kennedy and others, they propped up West Berlin with the Berlin Airlift for a number of years. West Berlin, by this point, it was undisputedly allied territory controlled by the uh, West Germans, the British, the French, and the Americans. The Soviets overnight almost had propped up a Berlin Wall that divided the city between eastern and western halves. And the eastern half was Soviet It was East German. It was Stasi and East German controlled. They would kill you if you tried to escape. And in late 1989, after Ronald Reagan had famously gone to Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, a few years later, they began tearing down the wall. It started as a trickle and more and more crowds showed up and the wall collapsed. A few weeks later, East Germans everywhere were taking matters into their own hands and outing the Stasi, dragging Stasi officers, the East German police, into the street. And on December 5th, 1989, a crowd of East Germans first showed up at the Stasi headquarters in Dresden and basically wiped the place out and then showed up across the street at the mansion wherein the KGB resided, the Russian secret police. The guard at the gate ran to get help. And from inside, a small man came out and in a very stern and firm voice told the crowd, we are armed and have permission to gun you down, come no further. And the crowd did not enter the building. And the KGB officer went back inside and he called. The Soviets had a division in East Germany. And he called the general and said that the KGB office was surrounded, that they needed the tanks and the personnel to come defend the KGB and disperse the crowd. And the Soviet general replied to the young KGB officer, we would, but Moscow is silent. Direct quote, Moscow 
is silent. The young KGB officer then proceeded to call the East German government and demand assistance that the crowd be dispersed, and the East German government replied to the KGB officer they could do nothing. Why? Because Moscow is silent. Moscow, under Mikhail Gorbachev, chose not to intervene. And that young KGB officer named Vladimir Putin was surrounded by the East German mob and had to use his wits about him as East Germany fell to keep the East Germans from dragging him into the street and dragging the KGB officers into the street and ransacking the KGB building. Vladimir Putin went back to Moscow thereafter as part of now Russia's security force and always remembered what it was like when Moscow was silent. And Vladimir Putin chooses not to have Moscow be silent any longer. And now we have to go into the really, really far way back train. We do, so that you understand the whole picture. Because you must understand Vladimir Putin and that incident to understand Vladimir Putin now. And you must understand this incident in order to understand where we are now. The Catholic Church divides between the Eastern and the Western half. You have to understand this. You, you, you've got to understand this is very important. History matters here, and we're seeing a Western response devoid of history. You have to understand the history. There was a great schism over ecclesiastical differences. The Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church in 1054, it was in part a great divide over the Council of Nicaea and the interpretation of the uh, Philippe uh, Clause, whether or not the uh, Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son or just the Father. I know, you got to bear with me here. It actually is important. The What you have to understand is that there was a great divide in the Roman Empire that translated over into the uh, into the Byzantine Empire. Constantine, of course, moved the, the capital from Rome to Constantinople, Byzantium, now Istanbul. I know, I can sing the song in my head. And there were church leaders, east and west, and none of them recognized the Pope and Rome as the governing entity. And there was a real divide there between Leo the Ninth and the patriarch of the eastern half of the church, Michael. And there was a real divide in uh, dealing with the Nicene Creed. And does the Holy Spirit proceed from just the Father or from the Father and the Son? And it was a real divide in how they saw the church. And we don't have to get into the theological underpinnings here to know that it was enough of a divide that the church began to break apart. 
And as the church began to break apart, and there was a divide between Rome and Byzantine, Byzantium, Constantinople, the churches took up great divisions. Now, I'm simplifying it. You do need to know a little bit because there's a complicated history here with lots of grievances. But you began to have an Eastern church and a Western church, and the Eastern church became Orthodox, and the Western church became the Roman Catholic church. It's a Roman Catholic church because the head of the, 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 head of the church in the Vatican Sea was part of Rome at the time. And there was a spread. And eventually... The eastern half of the empire, the Byzantine Empire now hangs on, and the Roman Empire collapse, and Rome and the, the, and the Pope there has to navigate a grand ecumenical divide between nation states, growing nation states. There had been a Roman Empire. They derived the Holy Roman Empire. You have the nations of France begin to take shape, the nations of, of Britain or, or England at the time, and Scotland and Spain take shape, and in the east... There becomes this growing force of people from the East called the Russians. They come down out of the Ural Mountains across the plains of Eastern Europe and they settle in a place called Kiev. And the Eastern half of the Byzantine Empire when the Arabs finally conquer it and, and collapse it, well, they rely on the Orthodox Church headquartered in Kiev to prop up the eastern half and the orthodoxy of the eastern half and defend the faith. And the Russian identity springs forth from Kiev. And over time, they spread out. And eventually, they settle in a place called Moscovy, Moscow. But the Russian people and their faith come from Kiev, always a part of the Russian identity. Ukraine was a province. It was never really a nation. But Ukraine, over time, developed territorial borders and unique language and cultural traditions and a flag. As Russia did the same. And Ukraine was always within the sphere of the Russian czars, but never really a part of it, once they settled up in Moscow and began to spread Russia across Asia. But they were always within the sphere of influence. And then the Soviet Union comes in, and they forcibly move Russians into Ukraine, perceiving that Ukraine is becoming too independent and it needs to be more Russian, and they settle in the eastern part of Ukraine. Western Ukraine continues to develop its own bit of identity until Solon and the Holodomor begins to uh, essentially starve them all to death in a plague that the New York Times itself helped cover up. So when the Soviet Union collapses, you betcha, Kiev and Ukraine, they want out. They want their own nation state, and they agree as they're becoming independent and finally for the first time in history truly exerting their own independence in exchange for that independence and peace with the Russians, they'll give up their nukes. So they did. And now over time, in the last decade or so, the Americans and the Europeans, 
They've been building up the military of Kiev, the seventh largest military in Europe now, with the help of Westerners. And here comes Vladimir Putin. And Putin says, Moscow has been silent for too long. Look what's happened. They've taken the very land where the Russians got their identity. The Western powers have creeped in. And now he sees Western divisions, sees the divisions with Trump and and NATO. He saw Obama when the Russian historic uh, port at Sevastopol in in Crimea, they decide to take it back over, take all of Crimea, and, and Barack Obama cannot rally European nations to do more than sanctions. Nothing. He knows the West is you is divided. He knows the West is more interested in cultural identity and wokeism and, and social justice these days. I mean, for God's sakes, the American embassy in the United Arab Emirates and, and the Vatican hoisted the rainbow flag and the Black Lives Matters flags. He's decided that the Western powers are the silent ones now. They're fixated internally on divides within their own nations, and part of that's seeded by a Russian propaganda campaign on social media that helped further divide it. And the time is right for Vladimir Putin to begin piecing together again the former Russian sphere of influence. Not as an empire, not as a Soviet Union, but reestablishing a Russian sphere of influence. Because... In December of 1989, he saw what would happen to him and his people if Moscow were silent and the West were united. And now he sees Western divisions internally and globally. They can't get on the same page domestically. They can't get on the same page internationally. And he thinks it's time for Moscow to no longer be silent. And so he's begun the reunification of the Russian sphere of influence, whether we like it or not. And the problem is not Ukraine. None of us want to send our kids to fight in Ukraine. The problem is we have a lot of allies who we are committed to helping. Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, Croatia, Macedonia, Moldova, they're all within our sphere of influence now. They are all partners or aligned or members of NATO. And Putin is banking on the fact that when he comes rolling in, we're going to let him have it. And if we do, all of our alliances collapse, and it's Putin's world order that stands in its place, which is why we have to act. Welcome back. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Although be patient with me. I may not get the phone calls this hour because I got a lot to say and, and, and help you process on what's going on out there. And I uh, don't really want to get off the beaten path here right now. While I kind of I have in my head, I need to make sure you guys know all of this stuff. Uh, and, and right now, one of the things you're asking, how on earth is this going to impact you? Let me start out and say that the reality is we're probably more likely than not not going to send troops to Ukraine. So if your children are in the military, probably you don't have to worry about that. Probably. You will pay at the pump. 
This will cause gas prices to go up. This will also cause natural gas and other energy prices to go up because the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is shut down. The Russians are signaling they're going to cut uh, natural gas to Europe now as payback for European sanctions. That's going to require that we begin exporting a lot of our natural gas to Europe. Additionally, it's going to impact the markets, market instability. In fact, uh, looking right now as I'm speaking here live, the Dow Jones is down over 300 points. All of this is going to impact inflation in the economy. So your impact here is going to be economic. Um, Now, what you have to understand in particular is that the Russians largely are not great uh, engines of economic output for the world. I saw somebody on television say, I forget who it was, that essentially Russia serves as the world's gas station. And that's about it. Uh, Russian money comes through oil and natural gas. And if the West declines to take it as part of sanctions, all of our costs go up, but it also hurts Moscow. Uh, China can fill the void there to some degree, but then uh, offset capacity means we can redirect Chinese, uh, anything that would go to China into Western Europe and to us. Uh, The Keystone XL pipeline should have uh, been continued, frankly. But also, there's another angle here that needs to be addressed. Uh, Moscow has for years shown uh, the way it's going to play politics. It has shown its heavy hand. Putin has been willing to assassinate people inside the territory of NATO countries. Putin has been willing to assassinate people at home. Putin has been willing to jail dissidents. Putin has been willing willing to come after Russian oligarchs who dared to defy him. And yet, Western European powers continue to divest oil and natural gas and fossil fuels and rely on wind and solar energy and Russian natural gas. As He showed himself more and more to be the tyrant that he is. Western European powers did not try to mitigate their reliance on him. In fact, they expanded their reliance on him and emboldened him. A lot of this is the short-sightedness of the politicians of the West on the left and the right. And we'll discuss that when we come back. Hello there. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Uh, though uh, I would request that you just just be patient with me because I'm probably not going to get to a phone call this hour. I've got a lot here that is on my mind uh, as I want to process the Ukraine situation and try to at least educate you guys on what's happening. And I, I've, I started the show by explaining why Vladimir Putin is doing this from his perspective. Vladimir Putin experienced uh, the failures of Moscow while he was a KGB agent in East Germany at the fall of the Berlin Wall. And he uh, has a historic belief in Kiev's ties into the Russian sphere of influence. In fact, uh, listen to this through an interpreter, Vladimir Putin, yesterday explaining his rationale. Once again, I would like to underscore that Ukraine is not just a neighbor, neighboring country to us. It is an inherent part of our own history, culture, 
spiritual space. They are our comrades, relatives, not only colleagues, friends, but also our family, people we have blood and family ties with. Since ancient times, people from ancient southwestern Russian lands were called themselves, were calling themselves Russians and Orthodox. That was happening until 17th century when part of these territories rejoined the Russian Empire, the Russian state, and after that. It seems that we know all about this, that we are talking about facts that everyone knows, but at the same time we need to have understanding what is happening today to explain motives and aims that Russia has. We need to say a couple of words about the history of this matter. I would like to start by saying that the modern Ukraine is completely was completely created by Russia, to be more exact by Bolshevist, Bolshevik communist Russia. This process has started almost immediately after the 1917 revolution. And Lenin and his supporters did it in a rough way, if we talk about Russia. They were alienating parts of historical territories of Russia. That's that's I mean Vladimir Putin's view exactly what I explained to you that that he views Ukraine as a natural part of an extended Russia it is where the Russian people came from and he doesn't want to let it go to the west even though western Ukraine is very much to the west There's a larger issue here though why now If you want to have some fun on Twitter today you can point out that Vladimir Putin invaded Crimea under Barack Obama and now the rest of Ukraine under Joe Biden and did nothing while Donald Trump was president. It's true. And my gosh, you will see heads explode in absolute rage, is spittle-fueled rage, because I've done it. I pointed that out. Now, to be fair, uh, Donald Trump signaled his own weakness in Syria where we were encountering Russian quote-unquote mercenaries. It was Russian military forces outnumbered American forces battling the Russians in Syria as a proxy war, and we beat them every time. Vastly outnumbered Americans beating the Russians. And Donald Trump pulled us out of Syria, said we had no business being there, and it signaled weakness to Moscow. It signaled we are not committed to the global stage, and Moscow will not be silent. Moscow will fill the void. Donald Trump should not have done that. And many of you, I think, were like, well, we have no business being in Syria. Let's get out. And and sometimes uh, we have a hard time looking at the immediate impact and who we're fighting versus the bigger picture. And these are bigger picture issues. I, I assure you that Vladimir Putin looks at the bigger picture here, not just the immediate nature of things. And we have to get back into that habit. We used to, as a people, we looked at the big picture, the landscape, and the historicity of a matter. We didn't look at just the here and now and where. We're playing a different game from Moscow. And Donald Trump should not have gotten us out of Syria. But a lot of people on the left say, well, look at, at what Donald Trump was doing. He was destabilizing NATO. And that had a lot to do. Nah. 
NATO's still there. Yeah, he wanted them to step up and pay more for it, but you're you're making a mountain out of a molehill where really that was a, a, a four-year saber-rattling exercise that got us a little more money. Uh, we weren't getting rid of NATO. We're not going to get rid of NATO. In fact, NATO probably becomes more important now because of that. Afghanistan, however, all those liberals saying, well, Afghanistan is where empires go to collapse. We just can't beat the Taliban. Well, that signaled a lot to Vladimir Putin. Joe Biden's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan looked incompetent, not just to us, but to Vladimir Putin. Barack Obama going around the world on a world apology tour for American sins, refusing to help the Iranian dissidents. Looking at the Libyan situation and the Syrian situation, that all signaled weakness to Vladimir Putin. And he's taking advantage of it. Here's the problem. Our American presidents since George Bush. And I want to carve out an exception here with Bush because Bush and his father and Reagan, and honestly, even Carter, for all of his faults, they had a worldview. Clinton, to a degree, did because he was surrounded with a lot of people who believed in realpolitik. And the idea is that we need to accept the world as it is, and we need to play for leverage and build alliances as we can to achieve our strategic objectives. Obama came in, and Obama's uh, team, they made a real big deal about, oh, he's realpolitik as well. He, he looks at the world as it is, not as he wants it to be, but that was crap. It wasn't true. Obama came in as an ideologue and an idealist and saw the United States in, in multilateral, multinational agreements and had a larger picture for our place in the world that involved us not being at the top, but having a kumbaya moment and holding hands with everyone else and moving forward on the same page. It was very idealistic. In 2012, when he was running against Mitt Romney for president and Romney called Russia our greatest strategic threat, Obama had that famous one-liner, the 80s call, they want their foreign policy back. And all the media's like, oh, he, Obama, he's so cool. Oh, he just burned Romney, burned Romney. Romney was right. Romney was right. There's a problem with Biden's worldview, and frankly, it's a worldview of Western progressive leaders. They bought into the idea of Francis Fukuyama after the fall of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Francis Fukuyama, a historian, wrote a book called The End of History. And his premise was that uh, we are on the, in, the, the inside of history where everyone embraces liberal democracy. And liberal democracy is the most stable form of government. And liberal democracies don't fight liberal democracies. And so war will soon be at an end. And they all believed it. Now, there were other historians saying, no, what's shaping up is an east-west divide here, and you don't understand this is not the end of history. This is the beginning of something new. But a lot of liberals embraced Francis Fukuyama's view that it was the end of history. Everyone would move to liberal democracy, even China. Look at Russia. It was headed in that direction, and we would all be at peace. But there's a problem here. What that does is it ignores 
nation states and peoples within those nations. If anything, some nations are destined to crumble because the people therein have wildly divergent views and backgrounds, ideologies, uh, and histories. Some would say that of us now here in this country. And uh, failure and breakup is a choice here in this country. We've all been committed to the American dream, but we have some in this country now who are deeply committed to an American experience and an American ideal that has never existed in this country, and they want us to believe that it's bad, that this country's bad. Those people need to sit down and shut up right now. We're dealing with bigger issues than their egos. We're dealing with major nuclear powers who want to assert themselves as leaders of the world. The Chinese are very quiet right now. They're watching to see how we respond to Russia. The Russians want to reassert a sphere of influence, and they see Western leaders who have been perfectly happy to turn a blind eye, let the good times roll, and allow Putin to respond. Uh, Jonathan Last over the bulwark. He highlights this. This is a, a tweet from Carl Bildt. If I compare with his speech in March 2014 when he annexed Crimea, this was far more rambling all over the place and unhinged and also more dangerous. Now he questions the very existence of Ukraine as a nation. It's a man with immense power who's lost contact with reality. This is Jonathan Last. Carl Blint was once the prime minister of Sweden, the head of a sovereign state, and he is a fool because Vladimir Putin is firmly in touch with reality. It is men and women like Bilt who believe that the international order is secured by pen and ink, who have been living in a fantasy land. They have spent a generation inviting catastrophe into their sitting rooms. They watched Putin jail and destroy Mikhail Khodorovsky, the richest man in Russia. They watched Putin assassinate dissidents on the ground in NATO countries. They watched Putin's army commit war crimes in Chechnya. They watched his 2007 Munich speech in which he literally said out loud that he wanted to roll back the westernization of Eastern Europe and restore Russia's dominance. They watched the invasions of Georgia and now Ukraine. In response, these same men and women decommissioned nuclear power plants in Europe and built gas pipelines to Russia so they could have good feelings about environmentalism while also pocketing economic windfalls. They crossed their fingers and closed their eyes. You tell me who lost contact with reality. And it's not just the lotus-eating Europeans. George W. Bush and Barack Obama both got rolled by Putin. Donald Trump was practically Putin's golfer. Gopher, he says. Our presidents were not alone. Much of conservatism, Inc. has become functionally pro-Russia, and much of the American foreign policy establishment decided that it could live in whatever reality it preferred. Their single accomplishment was killing America's two-war doctrine. Here's a typical news report from 2010. Defense Secretary Robert Gates' efforts to focus the Defense Department on the wars at hand, not the ones being waged in the minds of futurists fixated on Russia or China, is the guiding principle behind the new strategic document that sets the Pentagon's priorities for the next several years. Those silly futurists fixated on prospective threats of China or Russia. Here's Paul Miller with a representative attack on two-war doctrine two years later. Since World War II, U.S. military planners have argued we need to fight two major theater wars at the same time. The two-war doctrine has become something like holy writ or an idea fixe. 
The idea was somewhat well-founded during the Cold War when we plausibly could have faced simultaneous crises in, for example, Germany and Korea or Germany and Cuba. However, holding on to this idea for the last 20 years has looked increasingly disconnected from reality. Obama's new strategy goes through contortions to claim that we will sort of maybe continue to be almost able to fight and nearly win two wars at the same time, but it fails like every defense strategy has for two decades to explain why this formula is worth defending. And so the two-war doctrine was tossed aside in favor of a one-plus doctrine. The goal of the two-war doctrine was to prevent America from having to fight any major wars. Because when you have the ability to fight two conventional ground wars, you deter all of your enemies. A one-war doctrine, on the other hand, invites conflict. Think about it. America could, in theory, go to war against either Russia or China, but not both which means that both China and Russia are emboldened to pursue their interests. They know we are unlikely to respond to aggression because in any given instance, we will be paralyzed by the need to be able to deter a second aggressor. The two-war doctrine was a victim of its own success. It was so effective at deterring large-scale aggression, Americans became convinced it wasn't needed, that we could pocket the savings and get the same level of security through norms and agreements and economic interdependence. Here's the thing everybody except Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping seem to have forgotten. Reality is a tank, not a memorandum, not a summit, not a promise. Putin and Xi realize the West has gone soft internally and externally. We've lost focus, and now they're headed towards an alliance. And if they... Head towards that alliance. It makes it even harder for us to respond on the global stage. And you're thinking, good, it's okay. Let them have it. Let's just focus on ourselves. We don't want to be the world policeman. Well, if the world is run by lawbreakers and criminals, and you don't want to be the policeman, all you're going to be is the victim. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be a part of this program, I will slowly begin to take phone calls. I, I think I've given you all the, the, the vantage point in education on Ukraine that you can handle. You know, uh, if you follow me on social media, YouTube or Instagram or Twitter or the like, we put all these clips up so you can get them later. Uh, you can uh, follow E.W. Erickson and all of them. But if you text the word show... To 33777, you can get the podcast, uh, and so you can review this later as you need to. Text the word SHOW to 33777. I'll send you back the link uh, just so you have it so that you can uh, refresh your mind on what I was saying. All right. uh, Let us go to Mark. We'll begin there. Welcome to the program, Mark. Hi, Eric. Um I'm a senior year student in uh, military history. Uh, I also speak three languages, which, which allows me to, you know, read sources in the original language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to call in and uh, just make a case that um, in history, especially in the last decades, there is a compelling case that Russia actually comes from Kiev and yes. that Kiev has been kind of a separate, uh, I guess, like kingdom. Uh, that was competing with Moscow, dating back to like uh, like uh, I think it was uh, 11th century. Uh, 
And just wanted to call in and just voice this. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I'm glad you said that because he, even uh, Putin, for example, said in his speech yesterday that the Russian people essentially came from Kiev. Uh, and, I, I mean, most histories would note, in fact, that uh, as the the kingdom of Kiev and, and later Ukraine, they advanced towards the north. There was a blended people, but the Russian identity really – I mean, if you look, for example, at the architecture of Moscow – it's the architecture of Kiev, but 500 years uh, more recent. Um, the entirety, the Cyrillic language and the like, all devolves from there or derives from there, I should say. So it, it matters greatly that this is his worldview, and we're either going to have to treat Ukraine like an independent nation and help them, or he's going to expand his sphere of influence. By the way, Mark, speaking of that, i got to play for you all this audio real quick. This is the same American reporter. I want you to listen to this, uh, a skill set I do not have. This is Philip Crowther of the Associated Press. There's been a war with Russian-backed forces in the east, uh, the Donbass That's region, English. for eight years now. But despite that, the capital city of Kiev is relatively calm. Now this is him on Luxembourgian press, speaking Luxembourgian. Now this is him on Spanish television, speaking in Spanish. Now, this is him speaking Portuguese on this Portuguese news. Now, this is him speaking in Paris. Uh, French. And now, this is him speaking in Berlin on German television. I mean, the guy spoke English, Luxembourgish, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and German. That's all him. Uh, Philip Crowther of the Associated Press from Kiev. Amazing he's able to speak six languages fluently and uh, be across. I mean, people like that are indispensable for understanding this. Uh, whether you trust reporters or not, that's impressive. It's 2022. Things are still crazy. Things haven't settled down. And now you got the Federal Reserve and interest rates. You got the economy. You got inflation. A lot of banks won't even return your phone call. Let's say you're a small business and you need a loan for $750,000 or higher. You see an opportunity where banks, they don't even want to see you. You want to buy a building. You want to build a building. Reach out to the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Loan. They've been helping small businesses become big businesses since the 1990s. They want to help you if they can. So spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for you. Their website is firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. Again, you need a loan, $750,000 or higher. You're a small business and you see an opportunity to grow. Share it with the Frost family and see if they can help you. Firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. First Liberty Building and Loan can help businesses nationwide become bigger businesses.